grows and, and stretching their supply lines even more than they already have. And, and sort of just the fear of, of those weapons can start having an effect before they are even uh, being used. What do you think about that? Olsen, thoughts? Uh, yeah, so there's basically, I think, two ways that this plays out. Uh, one, unfortunately, is that uh, th there's a, a fairly high likelihood, like you can never just, you know, do away with the idea that for high importance items like this, that things that are exciting and like we've been working on a lot, there's a lot of, a high likelihood that people have been talking. Uh, and if you're on the Ukrainian side and an American official unofficially tells you, hey, ATACMs look like they're going to happen, uh, it could almost in a sense leak where you could say, hey, I'm just going to publicly say we're getting ATACMs because then if the Americans turn back, it looks bad. That's one way. The other way, and that's kind of the pessimistic view. The other view of this that I think would be also potentially likely and more masterminded would be that if we say ATACMs may be in play, we're giving up the advantage of uh, them not knowing they're in play. But the, 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 the counter side of that, uh, giving up that quote-unquote advantage, is then that you get to actually see what they move. And American and Western, especially American, intelligence is so advanced that we can basically see everything all the time at every level. And if, and we can run algorithms against them, right? And we can see what changes. And uh, when you say something like this, like, hey, ATACMs are going to be in play. And all of a sudden we run trending data and we say, oh, look over the last 30 days, almost nothing has changed. But as soon as we said ATACMs may be in play, these 10 regions saw mass movements in these very specific spots, it really helps to annotate what the Russians actually thought was important to protect because they started moving them. And that could be, I don't know, I don't know for sure, but that could be a very effective way of determining what was an effective target. And frankly, it would be futile because the less we just track them and most Soviet uh, era technology is not able to outrange that type of weapon system. And so they may move them to a new position, but they're still going to be within range. And all they did was help annotate to us which ones they were scared we'd hit. Uh, and that's a very effective way to highlight things. That is fascinating. Thanks. That was a cool answer. <laughs> that's your, uh, if that's true, that's, uh, uh, that makes me feel good about our side. I can say that for sure, like that is a way that the West does warfare. I cannot say for sure that that's what's happening, but, but for sure, that is definitely how the West generally thinks. They think about three steps ahead, and that's one of the core three steps. Of course, uh, the, we cannot know what's happening from, from uh, OSINT sources, right? Uh, what hap what's happening behind the line. A third possibility could be that, be that just by talking about this, it's sort of habituating the world and the Russians and everyone to the thought of attackers being delivered. So sort of uh, lowers the sort of boiling frog theory, right? Uh, if you slowly turn up the heat, then uh, then you never get to that threshold when someone's going to uh, react strongly to it. Yeah, I, I'll keep this short, but I would say that the there is a, it, it is disadvantageous to us to talk about it unless we're gaining in a very specific outcome from it so if you don't talk about it and then you deliver the system you have a window of opportunity to use the system 
in in a way against vulnerability spots that were previously not vulnerable due to range limitations. Uh, and so that is advantageous. Uh, conversely, if you if you talk about it like I just spoke about how you could do it, then you end up in a situation where you could highlight targets in an advantageous way to us. The middle ground, uh, to some degree, the boiling frog mentality is like it doesn't work in a war that's this hot already because you either need to not talk about it at all and hit with surprise or you need to talk about it with specific effects and maliciously take advantage of it. Right, so when you have something available, use it, right? Um, Marcus? Yes. Uh, actually, you just touched on what I was about to say. Uh, <clears throat> yesterday, we we uh, touched about this idea that uh, Western uh, military aid is is coming in on an escalating pace. That kind of, if you if you look at it, it seems like uh, if you wanted to involve Russians in, in in a war in this boiling the frog sort of way, this is basically the space you would do it with. But probably that's just just an accidental uh, feature of 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 politics. What, what do you think? Is the uh, is that something that Western intelligence and 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 strategy could actually accomplish? That to, to think forward that okay uh, we can actually uh, expend Russians much more if we involve them in in an escalating fight in this kind of slow fashion. Was that addressed at me specifically? Yes, actually it was because because you, you seem to have have at least some uh, grasp on how how the uh, strategy and and tactics is is, is formulated in the West. Stand by like five seconds. What? Just just wait a second. We'll be back in a second. Okay. Uh, so the way I understand the question, it, it, it seems like almost like you're asking like, is that a realistic way that the West would go about approaching the the war? Uh, I guess I, I yes, need yes, yes. That's kind of I, I was kind of asking. Do you think it's a it's a realistic way West would approach the war, or is it? Like, or is it even possible considering that West also has to obey it, its own politics? Like, obviously, it, it would have been politically very hard for us to, like, lob high Mars to Ukraine on February 24th. However, this also, how, how things happen now, it may be, uh, like, so that the, the military aid comes in slowly. That might be completely due to politics, or it might also be, to some degree, due to this strategy of, of boiling the Russian frog slowly. Uh, so I think part of that is spot on. I, so I think the first way to understand it is that uh, there's a fundamental difference between the West and the United States. Like, and, and I don't mean that in a way that like pr- progresses Russian narratives or propaganda, but there really is a difference uh, between how Europe thinks and how the U.S. thinks. The U.S. is very much a war-centric culture and nation. And uh, they absolutely think of warfare, at least on. So I, this is a hard, hard thing to explain. The American public cares about things in a very like adrenaline, cocaine, ADD level <laughs> type of spectrum hopping. Oh, so this is going a bit far, if I may. Say. Sorry. Let's, yeah. let's keep it uh, pretty for Anglo Anglophone pragmatism, um, yeah. realism on the one hand. And utopianism, on the other hand. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I so the American security state is extremely realist based. So it, it it works from the perspective of realist theory, and so it 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 thinks of things 
and in that harsh notion. And so uh, I think from that perspective, this is the only way to go about this war. I don't think they wanted this war. Frankly, I think that the American security state wanted to focus on China. Uh, but once the Russian threat presented itself, like, you know, first and foremost, it became a, a situation where there was no other way to fight this war than by uh, luring them in slowly. And, and unfortunately, that has a price to the Ukrainians. Like, we could have given a, a, an absurd amount of weapon systems from the get-go, uh, but there's a lot of risk to that. And so there's a domestic political uh, risk to asking Americans to deliver those systems, but I think that's overplayed. Really, it's that the American state security system thinks of it from the perspective of what will cause the maximum amount of damage to the Russian way of war. And the Russian way of war is not adjusted to the idea of a supporting agency giving increasing elements halfway through the battle. It's just not a thing. They don't plan to that at all. And so the idea of starting a war, advancing slightly, seeing that the Ukrainians have this immense amount of bravery with limited systems, and then all of a sudden they start getting layered on top advancement over advancement over advancement. The Russian inertia paradigm is almost purpose-built to be the opposite of that, is to build positive inertia and benefit off of it when you don't have that as a Russian war planner, you're in the flip opposite of what of what you've ever been trained to do and so ideally we have to keep space to keep adding things that they didn't plan to like if, if you're a russian war planner before HIMARS were introdu- introduced and now i introduce HIMARS, and there's a rumor about atacums you know the kremlin's going to come down and say why didn't you plan against HIMARS? and for the love of god atacums are coming up why didn't you plan against that and you're like that's insane you asked me to plan against scenario a and now you're asking why why didn't i do b and c uh there is a human element to that that the western way of war definitely looks into and thinks two or three steps ahead of and so uh the russian bureaucracy and soviet model does not lend itself to keeping up to that and i think that's what you're seeing right now and I think it's what you'll see, what you saw with HIMARS, which is, is what you'll see with ATACMS if and when they're produced. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks, Marcus. Uh, do you have a follow-up, or do I say I have a follow-up? No, no. So, my follow-up is, this, this really kind of, say, illustrates also Russian hubris, right? Russia went in ex- saying, oh, it's going to be a three-day special operation. Now we're on day, what, 143, 142, 143. Um, so, obviously, that didn't, didn't play out, right? That didn't pan out for them. Um, you say this hubris is a lot more widely spread that they just never kind of think of alternatives and they they always kind of only look maybe a day or two ahead and don't really consider what the alternatives would be. Or is it more of a situation of massively overestimating, massively overestimating their own also technical capabilities, such as, for example, with the S300s, S400s, obviously most of them, seeing there are many, many people who are reasonably high in in the Russian military hierarchy. Um, people such as that war criminal Girkin, who, you know, was, was kind of uh, instrumental in securing Crimea for the Russians and after that um, instigating the war in eastern Ukraine in 2014, but also before that also, say, in Transnistria, right? So it's so a relatively, not, not, a, not an unimportant person for the Russians, for the Russian military organization in the area. 
Like he was clearly under the wholesale impression that S three hundreds and S four hundreds are uh, going to easily take, you know, at least a good chunk, if not the majority of Gimlers out of the air. Um, would you say that this is more to do with the culture of lying and culture of misrepresentation to each other within Russia, or just the general, you know, a more fundamental inability to plan forward and to plan for contingency? Uh, the answer is basically yes. Uh, so I, it, it, to a lot of those things, I think you're spot on on a lot of the different factors. Um, the the I, I think any good spy would tell you uh, when you when you talk to the Russians, the only truth will ever come from a mid-ranking officer, right? Because they are just knowledgeable enough to know where the problems are, but just jaded enough to know where the high-ranking people are uh, <laughs> like deluding and lying to themselves about what their own contracting agencies are corruptly taking money from and underselling. Uh, that is exactly, I think, what happened with S-300 and S-400, probably S-500 as well, to be honest, uh, is like the upper echelon has been in an echo chamber talking up how good their systems are against simulated NATO engagements for so long that they genuinely might actually believe it. I, I, I don't even know if it's a lie. I, I think they like might really believe that um, without realizing how technical the NATO and Western like ways of war are and how much we analyze the problem set. Uh, because of that, like, because you've never seen NATO coming out with saying like, you know, Patriot and FAD and all these systems are super good <laughs> like giving out these ridiculous um, success ratios and, and advertisements like the Russians do. That is a get direct giveaway that like they don't actually have the technical analysis knowing how good it is. I think on the other side is that uh, there is an incentive structure within the Russian military that goes against telling the truth and goes against um, reporting honest readiness levels. Because the, like prior to this war, there was almost no history of modern warfare. Like Chechnya and everything was nothing compared to this. And so they don't, they never saw a real institutional wide incentive to like report real readiness numbers. And so I genuinely think they went to war at the high command level with a radically different idea of readiness than the mid command would actually like honestly believe. So it is indeed both of those, right? It's them having a massive overconfidence in their technical ability because they kind of get only, only learn of the, let's say best case scenario of what there could be. Right. And then, uh, and then on top of that, there's the just just the hubris of their human ability. On top of that, right, uh, thinking that they're a lot more capable as a military than what their capabilities actually are. I, I think it is those two things. I think on top of that, there is a human element that is uh, it's hard to quantify, but it's really important to think about. Which is is what I was talking about before with the ATACMs and HIMARS is like. There's an there's an element of there is not that many people that actually do war planning in contingency scenarios. And when, you know, the modern version of the Politburo is like, oh, shit, we need to do, you know, replanning of this entire operational plan. Uh, you have 72 hours, you know, 
Like there's a very, there's very few people that can fill that room and they have a pressure on them that is psychological and human. And I think that that's one thing the Western nations do pretty good at, especially America is that they've put into their war planning cycle, how to get into the minds of the unfortunate team of guys that get stuck in that room and given three days to replan the battle that, and, and purposely structure out how to mess with their heads about what, what to plan for by giving them too many disparate scenarios to plan for to be realistically achievable, which means the outcome will be technically uh, inadequate to be actionable. And, and, and so on and so on. Thank you, MP. I just want to comment to Osin, uh when you said the Russians didn't prepare much. I just want to remind, remind that there was a significant Sabad one exercise in Belarus in 2021. About 200,000 troops actually in, were involved. They had actually air component involved and they actually had naval components as, as well, involved as well. And they really built it up, you know. For, for this attack for a long time. Plus, they had this significant, significant exercise. But, you know, it didn't really prove their readiness to fight. So that's that's kind of my point. Awesome. Yeah, so I think uh, was the point, uh, like, uh, this is all personal opinion, but I, my... So backwards working from what we saw in the beginning of this war, we saw fundamental failures in some of the most important and fundamental aspects across all maneuvers and fire units. For instance, we saw most of the units moving in the uh, Kiev objective direction, moving without uh, encrypted radio and, and relying on like literally like Chinese Amazon Baofang radios and ham radios, uh, which for anyone who's ever been in the military knows that like if you think you're actually going on training or exercise, you lie. You're like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I put the keys in my radio <laughs> and then like. You didn't. I, what I suspect is that most of the Russian forces that actually were in the first few waves or the first objective pushes, especially V2V, uh, were probably actually believing that they were on exercise until the last moment or a close enough moment to the last moment where they weren't able to put in the correct uh, data, information, cryptography, all that. Which, or maybe just thinking that it doesn't matter because it's going to be a walkover and right, we'll just be either greeted as liberators or we will just be able to walk straight in because we're divided, we're all powerful and it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, th- I mean, that's possible. If I had to put money on it, I would probably say that like most soldiers are jaded, you know? And so like, I think anyone that probably had that kind of mentality is probably like a V2V officer. <laughs> and most of the soldiers were probably thinking they're on exercise. If I was a soldier under some officers, like we're the best in the world, I would still key the hell out of my radio because I just, I don't want to be there and I want the best chance to live versus if you think you're on training, it's just one out of a thousand different, uh, you know, scenarios where you're having to check the checklist and do the things and you, you don't really care. And what we saw in the signals environment definitely demonstrated that the military was not in a combat stance, uh, which like you were hinting at could have a thousand reasons, corruption could have all these things. But I tend to believe it's generally on the human element of the soldier of being like, I, I, I didn't think we were going to war, so I, I didn't actually do the checklist because I didn't really care. Um, 
I think the same thing was true in Zapod in the exercises leading up to it, there was large scale mobilization. I think what mattered there is that it very clearly demonstrated to the Western powers, especially the United States, that war was on the table because, and this is all open source information, but when they left that exercise, they left behind equipment, command and control equipment, radio equipment, point to point microwave communications, all these things that were uh, not things they normally leave behind. And so it showed that they basically used that entire large force exercise as a cover to move significant of hardware and poundage of equipment to the front. And soldiers were like, oh, dude, I don't have to bring this back. Hell yeah. I mean, like They didn't complain at all. But from the Western perspective, we saw it on satellite imagery and we said, okay, this is not normal. And it is exactly what you would do if you were about to do a large-scale attack, especially if you're corrupt enough to believe your forces actually work correctly and that the C2, EW, or command and control, electronic warfare, and point-to-point communication assets you're leaving behind would matter, which, fortunately, they didn't really end up mattering. But, you know, at least they believed it. Yeah, and the preparations for support uh, last year happened in April. And uh, it was evident already at that time what was being prepared for because they looked substantially different than previously. And during the part when it was rolled up, the preparations are always more important than the real thing. And uh, what happened, however, is the equipment changed. Certain things, such as the mobile crematoria, were already parcel of this, and a couple of other things which had not been seen um, by NATO SIGINT in theater for many, many years, if at all, ever. And as a consequence, it was clear already at that time, prior to September, what they were training for. Agreed, yeah. We cut, and then we'll go to Tom after. Yeah, spot on, spot on, guys. Exactly my point. I was actually going to add that as well. So, pause in that axle. So, we saw the same at that, you know, certain equipment were left behind and never returned actually to, you know, uh, close garrisons to the Finland, like Kamenka, etc. We were surprised about that, but of course that was a, you know, indication of the war. Spot on. Yeah. And therefore the criticism by the British uh, as to the, shall we say, um, domestic policy um, overlaid, Afghanistan withdrawal overlaid, um, exhaust, exhaustion of general staff overlaid, delaying addressing this issue uh, with toughness and with significantly bigger levels of deterrence, larger levels of deterrence capacity in October, November is a valuable um, data point. On the point of the British response, Axel, Tom? Yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of comment that um, I think the, the simplest explanation for the woeful lack of preparation is exactly what um, Osin uh, was, was just saying, really, which is that at certain levels of, of like Russian command, I don't think they knew they were going in. I think it was obvious from like satellite intelligence and the like that this is exactly what you would do prior to invading. But I do think that probably quite a lot of the Russian armed forces thought this is a bluff. This is a political negotiating bluff in order for Putin to try and get something that he wants. And I strongly suspect that there's a possibility that it may have been a bluff at one point 
um, maybe maybe months ago, maybe in early January, it was a bluff. And then perhaps when Putin realised he wasn't going to get what he wanted, he was like, well, let's just go in anyway. Because, I mean, if you compare it to, say, I don't know, um, Western invasion of Iraq, like, you know, first Gulf War, second Gulf War, we all knew we were going in. It was all over the news. No one was lying and saying they weren't going to invade. And what that meant was, is that everyone from the top generals down to the, you know, the soldiers and the people moving equipment could adequately prepare and would realise that if they weren't prepared, it would be them that would be in trouble. Um, now, we know there's massive corruption, um, massive shortages of equipment, you know, worn out Chinese tyres, uh, soldiers selling their diesel for vodka and that sort of thing. But I suspect that if those soldiers really knew they were actually going to go into war, that they wouldn't have sold as much of their diesel as they did and have their tanks and armoured personnel carriers run out of fuel, which we saw um, in, you know, the first week of the invasion. So I think there must have been, you know, quite a lot of people that did know what Putin's plans were. But I think it was kept secret. And I think it was kept secret. I'm not entirely sure why. I think it was kept secret so that it could be denied. Um, because I think if every single foot soldier had been told, yes, we're actually going to invade, we'd have had sufficient like, intelligence, was, uh, you know, human intelligence sources, that it wouldn't take anyone by surprise. And everyone would have realised, oh, God, the Russians are really going to go in. Um, so I think it was kept secret. And I, I do believe when some of those uh, young conscripts were saying, we didn't know, we were just told this was a training exercise. In the first week, I believe that. Um, I think later, I think it was Roman, um, rest his soul, that was telling us that they'd taken people prisoner who'd said that they, they basically said the same excuse. We just thought this was a training exercise, but this was like two months later. And they had equipment that had suggested they'd previously been in uh, northern Ukraine. So I think there's a point at which soldiers were lying and saying, we just thought this was an exercise. But I strongly suspect that in the first week of the conflict, actually a lot of those young recruits that immediately surrendered really hadn't been told what was going on. Um, does that make sense to people? Um, so there's a couple of things here, Tom. I, I think... I'll agree with you on one part, but I'll expand it a little bit. You know, when you said it had they thought they had, they were going to go to war, they wouldn't have been selling all their diesel, and they wouldn't have sold as much of their diesel or whatever. I, I agree with that in the sense that they didn't think they were going to war. They thought they were going to, um, you know, just a, a regular genocide against civilians. Because a lot of what the Russian army thought is that they were going to be walking into the rest of Ukraine just like they walked into Crimea in 2014, right? Where there was barely any military resistance because Yanukovych had dismembered the army intentionally so that in case that Yanukovych ever left from Ukraine, um, Putin would have an easy job of you know, take, taking over Ukraine or whatever parts of Ukraine he wanted. What they didn't take into account was that over the eight years between 2014 and 2022, the Ukrainian army had changed. The Ukrainian army was no longer this dismembered, weak, um, you know, ruin that Yanukovych left behind. The Ukrainian army was instead much better trained, much better equipped, and kind of preparing for eight years for a wholesale Russian invasion, or just, or at least another Russian invasion in the east. Right. Um, so, so I think that that's where that's where a lot of the difference was. Now, 
as to whether the soldiers knew where they were going or not, remember that this this excuse, oh, we were just there for, for an exercise has been something that has been repeatedly used by Russia. So this wasn't the first time that, that they had that they had done that. This wasn't this wasn't a rare event for them to have to have said. So um I think it's more of a case of uh this truly being an excuse from the start. Now, did every single one of them know? Maybe not, but I would venture that at least the vast, vast majority, overwhelming majority knew what they were what they were going for. At least at the point when, you know, they were already in Ukraine. Maybe they were only told at the last minute just before crossing the border. Maybe, maybe some of them. Maybe there's a handful that weren't aware until they they were actually in in a fight. Maybe a handful in the first few hours, maybe a handful. But beyond that, I wouldn't believe it. Um, You know, maybe a handful of the truly least aware, uh, least interested. I'm just doing whatever they tell me to because I'm here and I have no choice maybe a handful uh, but beyond a true handful and I mean you know a, a percent maybe or a fraction of a percent no they, they would have known by the time they were in Ukraine um, Axel what, what's your what's your thoughts on this I, I think you're you know oh last thing I want to say is you know the West knew the intelligence services knew that that's why the Americans kept saying it out loud as well. The American government kept saying it out loud as well. They knew exactly what was going on. Uh, they didn't know when Russia would cross the border. They didn't know that Russia would necessarily cross the border this year, right? But they knew that the possibility of that was very high. And the same went for Ukrainians as well. The Ukrainian government knew. They just couldn't say it publicly because had they said it publicly, this would be, you know, fear-mongering. And then what happens if they cry wolf? And what happens if they say it publicly and Russia basically scares Ukraine into publicly saying, oh, no, we think that Russia is going to invade and then Russia can always decide not to, right? Uh, I think that, that, was a, that was a part of it as well uh, that, was, that, that, was, that was in there. And um, Actually, if you want to jump in on any of this, because you have a quite a nuanced, nuanced look at all of it. And if not uh, quite right now, uh, let's go to Olsen. Yeah, so I think uh, I, I don't disagree with your general outlook on the Russian military. But I think the most important indicator for the reasons that you put out about like selling diesel and whatnot, the most important indicator to me is always electronic readiness because it is the thing that normal armor and infantry related soldiers of basically any military to include the United States uh, shirk. It is the thing that they don't care that much about until shit's about to get real. And when they think that war is about to be real, they get really, uh, as we say in the U.S., like pucker factor. They get really scared really fast, and they suddenly need everything to work exactly right. They need their GPS to be, you know, crypto keyed. They need their uh, satcom to be crypto keyed. They need everything to be just right. When the Russians attacked, and you saw a massive amount of them unable to communicate at the distances they thought they would, and almost none of them in a secure manner until like more than two months into the battle. Um, that to me demonstrated that a large portion of them probably really didn't believe it, like didn't believe it'd be full at war. And and I think you are right to say that maybe they didn't know until right before. I, I think that that would align itself with previously Cold War level published Cold War like uh, Soviet doctrine where 
they may have told them right before they pushed over the border. Like, hey, the morning of, here's ammo, here's your orders, here's your things, you know, go for the motherland. Like, like, and, and, and that to me is for the, at least for this discussion, that's the same thing. Like, like at that point, it's too late. You can't fix it. And so all we can do from our side is analyze the symptoms and the symptoms we're seeing are things that at the very least I can tell you no competent adversary or like even soldier of a, a remotely near peer level would do the things they did in the beginning of a war, unless they actually thought they weren't going to war. And to be frankly honest, if you did it with American troops that way, they would have done roughly the same thing. Most American troops don't key their SATCOM. They don't key their GPS. They don't key their things in accordance with their checklist, the way that they swear they do, uh, unless they really think they're going to war because it's just too much hassle and they don't care. Uh, and, and that's, that's the symptoms I saw at least which makes me think most didn't know probably until a few, maybe, you know, a few days out from invasion. Now, once they push in, when they're trying to complain that like, Oh, we didn't know once they're taking POWs, like, yeah, screw that. That's bullshit for most of them, except for maybe the first couple waves of DDB or something. But like, uh, other than that, not a valid excuse. Thanks. Austin. Um, yeah, no, this 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 goes back to what I was saying earlier, kind of, right? No, I, I mean, I agree. They didn't, I don't think they thought they were going to war, where war means that they were going to face against the army that resists them actively, etc., right? Um, I think they, they thought they were going in for, I don't know, what should we call a police action, a genocide, a, right? A, a army versus foreign civilians kind of situation. I, I mean, that's it's the uh, one thing I'll say about some degree. Oh, sorry. Tom? Tom? Okay, I think Tom has technical difficulties, right? But like, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't key in your SATCOMs for dealing with unarmed civilians, right? And this is kind of how VDV has been used recently, in, in recent years. They were kind of parachuted somewhere, they needed literally parachuted into somewhere. Uh, there was a you know, civilian protest or anything like that, and... They were fine for that, obviously, because they had guns and the other people didn't have guns. To me, I actually think, I think you're right, but it is unit dependent. In this case, we're talking about large-scale multi-force employments. VDV, in the past, being used for multiple force application uh, scenarios to include domestic repression, uh, they're kind of experienced in scenarios where it makes them shirk the responsibilities large force employment of infantry and things like that, that aren't to be, aren't elite, not doing, basically doing the same thing by not uh, keying their radios and things like that. That to me shows that I, I just, I literally, I don't think that they thought they were going to go in until it was too late. Cause like, even if I thought I was about to steamroll a bunch of dudes that were like all about Russia, like, yeah, I want to be controlled by Russia. I would still want to have properly keyed communications at the very least. Not, maybe I may not key my precision navigation or timing stuff, but like I would want to key my radio just if nothing else. So I could talk to headquarters because the military and the Russian side doesn't work unless headquarters also do. And the plans that I had been delivered, you know, uh, up to a week out had distances that outranged a radio if it, the radio wasn't keyed, which in a scenario for training wouldn't matter but in the start for war it would so if i thought that it, we were really going to war 
even if I thought that the enemy was going to roll over just for pure comfort and boredom and like laziness, I would still key it. Those are the types of things that indicate to me that there generally wasn't a knowledge. And to me that that, that actually makes the most sense because Putin is paranoid and is a very KGB esque answer to things where he's so paranoid that American and U S and NATO, um, Intelligence is so permeated that the only way to secure against it is to hyper-limit the knowledge of it. Can I add to that, Domen? Yeah, Peter, go ahead, and then we'll go to Tom afterwards. Peter? Yeah, so, so uh, this fits, I think, very well with, uh, with you know, the, the command and control doctrine of, uh, of deception. Uh, that is how the Russians think they can beat a stronger adversary. Um, and which was elevated uh, uh, through the so-called uh, Gerasimov doctrine. Uh, and uh, having read that, uh, a lot of it is highly, highly complex. And I'm sort of figuring in the head of, you know, someone like uh, a self-declared mastermind, uh, uh, Midget, who's, uh, who's trying to run things from, from uh, Moscow. If you uh, read th- those things, then there's all this stuff about deception, then uh, the element of surprise, and specifically in these articles, mentioning pretending you're doing exercises. Uh, that's something, yeah, we're going to do that. that, that you, so, so everything else in those doctrines uh, are, is very theoretical. You need to go get into the head of the opposition and find out how they're thinking. And then you have to, you know, do something that will make them do the wrong move. It, it's not very actionable. But that one thing about uh, surprising the enemy and specifically the, all these mentions of pretending you're on exercise, that sort of stands out. So I'm thinking... Uh, they were trying to implement something they didn't underst- understand, and they thought that yeah, we're we're going to really surprise them, and that's going to you know win the war, and and we're playing fourteen fourteen dimensional chess here. Tom, yeah, that that makes sense to me. I think the Russians think that through secrecy they can win by surprising people, but the problem is they surprise their own troops. Um, I don't know if you guys heard me before I got cut off about how. Uh, Russian troops' mobile phones were taken off of them just before they went in. And that means that prior to that, they would have had them and been able to phone their families. And if they had known they were going in, at least some soldiers would have phoned their families and gone, we're really going to war, we're going into Ukraine in the next few days. And we'd have that intelligence now. Um, The fact that we don't have that suggests to me that they probably were told just before they went in. Um, I think perhaps there is a small number of recruits that weren't told what was going on. Um, but anyone beyond, say, 72 hours that said they didn't know what was going on is, is just bullshit. It's just an excuse. Um, I think the lack of diesel in vehicles is as key as the not having encrypted radios. You'd make sure you had enough fuel that you wouldn't get, uh, you know, run out of gas and stuck on the side of the road. I think if... If they knew what was going to happen, they would have been more prepared than they were. But if they thought this is a saber-rattling exercise, this is us threatening the West, they're trying to get some kind of political concession, um, what shall we do? Ah, we might as well just, you know, sell our diesel and get drunk because there's not really going to be, oh, fuck, there's a war, (laughs) you know? (laughs) That's what I think happened. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why they were so woefully unprepared so i totally agree with with peter and with with Osin about that um i i i can't think of any other 
simpler or more logical explanation as to why they were so woefully unprepared for this. And it's just another example of Russian stupidity. Um, they surprised their own army, is what I think. I think that is a narrative in there which is not quite true. And uh, I presume soon enough you will have sufficient amount of signals intelligence which will invalidate this. They were very well prepared and a large part of their officer corps was very well informed. And they were so well informed that they even advised their soldiers to tell them, uh, to tell when captured, that they would actually have had no, had no idea. There's a narrative ongoing uh, in order to exculpate So um, clearly, soldiers. because we've, we've had with Romans. There's substantially more evidence in that regard. But uh, you will have to wait until the end of the war. Tom, did your audio malfunction again? I think Tom's audio is playing up today. Um, uh, Mark, go ahead, and then we'll go to Peace for Ukraine. Mark? Yes, hey, Doman, thank you. It, it's fascinating to hear these details that uh, uh, about the beginnings of the war that just wouldn't have been obtainable in it through any other news source. So thank you with that. What, what I'd like to kind of comment on was just kind of moving forward a bit. My biggest fear for the end of the war is that it's going to play out in the next month. And, and tell, hear me out and tell me why I'm wrong. I, I think uh, Putin is a bit of a realist. He knows what he's up against. They're, they're giving their, their soldiers along the lines, their artillery, artillery yeah, those guys, a, a chance to regroup, lick their wounds, get resupplied, and they're going to go after a full bore against the rest of the dumbbell. After which, if they get, the plan would be for Putin to say, okay, we're done here. Um, we're, we, we got the lines that we always planned to get and we're finished. Upon which, I mean, the West will probably be pretty, pretty divided. I know Biden says he, he'll, he'll support whatever Ukraine wants to do. But at some point, the West, there's going to be, you know, a big policy discussion. Well, do we just accept that or do we um, and just stop supplying arms to Ukraine? And, um, yeah, I, I just fear that's the most likely scenario that's going to play out. And if so, it's going to play out within the next month or so. Just Poon grabs the rest of the dumb boss and saying, okay, I'm done. And um, keep... Don't worry, he does Okay, good. Please, Axel, go on. I think we discussed it a couple of times already in the space. Logistically, they are not capable of taking it. They'll throw everything in the kitchen sink at it in the next coming days. Okay. Uh, this is why you heard all these messages from Shoigu. But uh, fortunately, the Ukrainians now have the capacity to not only stop them, but completely attrit them in that area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. Thank you to, for bringing me back to reality. But uh, of course, you're right there, Axel. I, I, I tend to be a, a bit of a worrier, but um, yeah, I, I see your point and, exactly. And being, being worried and concerned is fine. It's not an issue. But in this instance, what has happened with more than 30 supply and command points in recent days will just increase by means of having the 270s and 270s in theater, more gimlers and wide, uh, longer range gimlers, as well as attackums coming into theater. The Russians are about to see a long, long, hard road back. And what do you, what do you, th I mean, if, if Putin were to make the Oh, well, I guess you're saying that, that the Russians don't have the ability to take the rest of the Donbass, which, yeah, I, I can see. It. Okay. 
But we want to see them try. <laughs> I, I'm with you 100% on that. <laughs> You're right. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, and I, I think Mark that you're correct in saying that that might be something that the Russians might want to do, and it's therefore even more so important to, um, you know, hold steady in the West and not suggest that Ukraine follows any such uh, uh, poor suggestions by the Russians, um, as opposed to what some might want to do, might want to do, of course. Um, let's go to peace for Ukraine and then back to Osin. Peace for Ukraine. Good afternoon, everyone, and Um I would have a two couple sort of questions, teasers um, as to the, the earliest point of preparation of the so-called Russian army, and then a specific question to, sort of inquiry to OSINT, if it's possible. Certainly. Thank you. Uh, so, as far as preparation uh, uh, and of the, uh, let's say, ignorance of the soldiers, perhaps, Doman or Axel, can you remind me uh, how early did we found out that the Russians came in prepared with 45,000 body bags wasn't uh, when uh, the Battle of Kiev ended, and would that, would that constitute uh, a proof of preparation? And in addition, uh, knowing the past practice of the Russian so-called army in prior invasions, um, how many and did they bring with them their mobile crematorium to hide their war crimes and burning the bodies of people they were murdering, um, in addition to also hiding uh, their own death soldiers so that they do not have to report as many casualties and also not pay the families. Remind me again, did we found this and it, does this constitute some sort of preparation? There's there's two things here, right? Um, there the initial speculation was that that might be what the mobile crematoria are for. Uh, there has been quite a lot of talk since uh, that it's quite likely that the mobile crematoria were um, perhaps there to uh, disappear unwanted Ukrainians, right? Uh, Ukrainian politicians, you hire high-ranking Ukrainian, uh, perhaps military officers, perhaps security services personnel, perhaps uh, intelligentsia. Uh, journalists, you know, anyone who could be, let's say, problematic for the occupation authorities, right? Um, so th there's also that that component of it, um, that perhaps they didn't bring them. And, and this is how Russians have been using mobile crematoria in the east of Ukraine previously already, right? It's people who were disappeared, taken to torture prisons, tortured to death, and then, you know, just so nobody could ever then Know, discover their bodies or or find any remnants of them anywhere. Uh, so so that's also that's also quite a significant factor when it comes to the mobile crematoria. Um, yeah. So I would say that um, I think we can conclude um, on as a small part or one fragment of the proof that exists that they knew what they were coming from. Absolutely. For they knew. 
and they were prepared for what they were doing and the specific instructions they had. So this is this is not just something that came out of the blue in the night before they were sent to invade Ukraine. Um, I'll move along uh, for that type of question of conjecture because I think it does make does not make sense. Um, and I would have a question just to uh, perhaps to Ozen or to Axel or um, I don't know who may have more information. I saw I think yesterday um, a post regarding 150 soldiers from uh, Russian so-called soldiers that went back to Buryatia um, because of the pressure the mothers and the wives made for them to return home. And my question and my inquiry is not that I'm concerned about their well-being, they were tired and uh, their contract was too extended. My question will be more uh, that I found that interesting if that group arrived to get 150 soldiers home, have we heard of additional also actions like these ones, even small as they may, considering the size uh, of the forces that are currently in Ukraine? Um, I, I wonder if there's additional for this, additional information for other groups or other, other troops that are going back or additional pressure that is being made. And could this small drop here and there cause some sort of wave, internal wave that will force the hand and maybe turn things around a bit. I'm just trying to, you know, find a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you. Well, these you. 150, one after 150 war criminals obviously had to go back home because their families could not read or make sense of the washing machine and appliances manuals for all the goods they had been sending back before and after raping and pillaging. So we obviously are very, very much um, concerned about their well-being. Um, no, I'm just sorry that they didn't went back in body bags. Um, but in any case, I, my question will, would be more if there would be additional things that we heard um, uh, to this effect, similar cases that could potentially um, give some sort of hope in, in this is going to happen more, therefore inside there will be a turmoil and the, this, this dissent or the fact that the soldiers do not want to fight anymore, they want to just lower their, their, their weapons and, and go home, uh, if this could have some sort of, um, you know, like, a, snowball effect that could somehow affect positively in, in the or move faster for for them to just get the get the fuck out of Ukraine and go and go to to Russia and I'm sorry this was a technical term it is a technical term get the fuck out of Ukraine thank you unfortunately I see no I see no intelligence from my perspective that indicates that that's happening I wish it was I really wish it was. Um, but uh, my my most honest perspective is that the Russian information machine on the vast majority of Russian troops is working. And that the uh, 
although morale may be low for combat reasons, the ideological reasons of going into Ukraine seem to be holding uh, in their fallacy and ridiculous fairy tales of Nazism and all that bullshit. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, let's go on to Peter, Papi, Slava, and then Toshi. Peter? Well, I think uh, we have to be careful what we believe of these stories of what is happening among Russian soldiers, but I think I read the complete opposite. I think I read that mothers uh, were and wives were trying to get uh a number of soldiers back because they you know they they had all these issues or maybe they they wanted them to be better fed or something and that uh, instead they were sent to the worst part of the meat grinder and basically eviscerated which is more i think the russian style but it's also something that the russian propaganda apparatus would like to spread to to dissuade people from from exactly these kinds of protests right Papi? Good afternoon. So on the uh, episode that was uh, widely shared and uh, got a lot of visibility of um, the Buryatian mothers and the sisters and whatnot, uh, and uh, um, the media amplification that it received, I tried to go back to the original sources on that particular episode because it would have been uh, interesting, actually, if... uh, confirmed to be a signal of a potentially wider um, phenomenon. However, I ended up uh, a little bit disappointed, meaning that um, it all uh, seems to go back to the same sources, including uh, one uh, uh, also widely shared article on uh, um, Radio Liberty Free Europe. It is uh, a an organization called the Free Buryatia Foundation, uh, and uh, I could not find uh, much. Maybe someone knows uh, more about it, uh, but uh, the media presence uh, and uh, the website itself uh, does not uh, give to me much confidence that uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't, uh, I hesitated to call it uh, not necessarily legitimate because, of course, uh, you can only say those things if you have a uh, more information about it, uh, but let's say that I did not get a lot of uh, a lot of confidence uh, on uh, uh, the primary sources on this particular episode. I would be happy to be um, told otherwise if someone was able to find more information. Yeah, I think you're quite right, Papi. Just like Dawson said, right? There seems to be very little primary information that that covers that. It, well, it's always possible. It's you know, who who really knows, right? Um, 